Food trucks in Babylon. The name is ridiculous. I mean, the image that it gives to us of, of a modern food truck, kind of like this beautiful food truck right here, showing up in an ancient Mesopotamian city. I mean, those things, it just seems like they don't really fit. It's like those two things don't belong together. And for many believers today, that's how we feel about our society. It seems like we don't belong, that we don't fit, that there's this increasing distance between our worldview and the worldview of others around us, and maybe even a growing sense of hostility toward the things of God. It feels as awkward for many of us as if we were trying to serve up a bunch of tater tot hot dish to a group of Babylonians. It's like you wonder, is this even going to work? Babylon was an ancient city. It was an empire. And we read about Babylon throughout the Bible. And oftentimes we read about it historically when it was an empire and and as they had conflict with the people of God. But Babylon also serves throughout scripture as a symbol. It's an archetype because Babylon was famous for their rebellion against God. They were famous for saying that they could do life better than God. And so all throughout scripture, when we see Babylon referenced, many times it is that symbolic sense or or that representation of any time we see a human system trying to create a world without God. And in that way, many of us, we live in a type of Babylon. For you, Babylon might be the university that you attend. Or for some of you, it may be your place of employment. Others of you, you you live in neighborhoods or you're part of youth sports associations that honestly feel kind of like a Babylon. Some of you may even live in countries who are watching this online who have a Babylonian approach to things of God. They are hostile to the things of God. And so regardless of of what our unique Babylon might be, all of us who are believers are wrestling with this question. And here's the question for today and the question for our series. It's this, how do you navigate Babylon? How do you navigate Babylon? And the good news is God gives us some brilliant examples in scripture of how we can not only navigate but how we can thrive in Babylon. And the example that we're gonna look at today is from a teenager who was brought to actual, the actual city of Babylon in a midst of captivity. And it was there that we can see four different things that we can be doing to help navigate the Babylons in which we find ourselves. So to look at that story today of that teenage boy, we're gonna be in the book by his name, It's a book called Daniel. It's found in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up or turn it on and and navigate over to Daniel chapter one. That's where we're gonna be spending our time today for us to learn about how to navigate the Babylons in which we find ourselves. So let's begin Daniel chapter one, starting in verse one. I'm gonna be reading from the New Living Translation here today. Uh, During the third year of King Jeroboam's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. 
So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Okay, this is pretty disturbing news and and a a tough way to open the story of Daniel. What's happening here is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has come into Jerusalem. This is the the city of David. This is the cherished place of of the people of God. It's this image that that God was protecting Jerusalem. And and now there's been this army that has come in and, and invaded it. And to make matters worse, Nebuchadnezzar goes into the holy temple, the place of God that was only reserved for the high priest. And and it's there that he collects these articles and takes them away to his own God in Babylon. The ancient Near East kings did this. And it was a way of these pagan kings kind of showing that, that their gods were greater than the gods of the people that they conquered. It was the idea that uh, your God is, is so weak that, that your God can't stop us from coming into his place and taking his things. And then we bring them to our God because our gods are bigger than your gods. And so for the people of Israel, this was just tragic news. I mean, it was publicly humiliating and embarrassing to watch God's articles being carted off to Babylon. And oftentimes, I think we experience similar things in our own Babylons. It's like we, we look at what's happening around us and we say, God, are you, are you going to do something about this? God, how could you allow this to happen? But that wasn't Daniel's perspective. Daniel had confidence in the midst of this really disturbing scene. And the reason is because of how he phrases verse 2. Did you catch it? Let me just quickly read it to you again. The Lord gave him, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, victory. See, Daniel's perspective on this was that that God was in control of who's in control. And that's the first thing that we need to know about how to navigate Babylon is we need to know that God is in control of who is in control. And that lesson is really good news for us. It's important for us because it gives us the confidence and the perspectives that regardless of what's happening around us, ultimately it's God who's in control. That we believe that God is sovereign. That means that anything that God wills to do or anything God decides to do, no one can come against them and no one can thwart it. And that was Daniel's perspective. And we need that in the Babylons of, of today. Over the last 18 months, I've had many conversations with Christians who are anxious about people that are in authority or in leadership positions. Maybe you've had some of these conversations. I've heard the phrase, oh, we just can't allow so-and-so to be in office. And you can insert a whole different list of names for so-and-so. I've heard this on all sorts of the political spectrums over the last year and a half. It seems that we're just kind of wringing our hands, all anxious and worried about the people who are in charge. But folks, we need to know that God is the one who is in control of who's in control. In fact, that's the whole attitude that scripture takes. The apostle Paul writes this in Romans 13 to us. It says that everyone must submit to the governing authorities for all authority. And then here it is, all authority comes from who? Comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So the idea is that God's the one who's in control of who's in control. So we don't need to be in despair when we see people who are in control that don't support our worldview or who aren't believers in God. Now that brings up an interesting question though for us as believers, because what do we do when we are under the authority of someone who is godless? And what do we do when the authorities ask us to do something that violates scripture? 
And we actually see that in the example of Daniel. And Daniel shows us how we can live an uncompromised life in Babylon. But it's interesting about how Daniel goes about that, which we're going to see in his story here today. But see, Daniel needed that confidence of knowing that God was in control of who was in control because it helped him to face even more challenges that he experienced when he went into Babylon. Because not only did Nebuchadnezzar cart off all the things of God and take them to Babylon, he also carted off a whole group of people and brought them as captives to Babylon. And Daniel was included in that. This was all part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan and strategy to, to, to totally crush the people that he conquered. He would find some of the best and the brightest, and Daniel was among that group. And he would try to convert those individuals away from the identity of who they were. So he wanted to take Daniel and, and make him no longer a Jewish man, but he wanted to change him into a Babylonian man. And he was trying to change and transform his identity. And so he took Daniel and a, and a group of his friends and he brought them into his court. And it was there, they, they started this, this process of trying to change Daniel. And one of the first things they did is they gave Daniel a new name. Let's read about it in Daniel 1 in verse 7. Here's uh, how the story goes. Uh, it said, the chief of staff renamed them, and this is meaning Daniel and his friends, with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Now that might be a verse that normally you'd kind of skip past in the story of Daniel. But in the ancient Near East, names carried immense meaning. And the name Belshazzar actually is a, a term that is given honor and praise to some of the gods or one of the gods of Babylon. Specifically, it's the god Marduk. And the god Marduk was referred to as Bel. And so the name Belshazzar literally means Bel's prince. Now, keep in mind, Marduk and all of the other Babylonian gods, these were demons. That's just what they were. Babylon was famous for being a place steeped in the occult. And so this name is actually giving honor and praise to a demon. Can you imagine? I, I mean, this would be like somebody coming into your, your community and, and finding you and removing you from your home and taking you to a foreign land and then saying to you that from now on, your name is going to be known as Satan's prince. And so every time you have to write your name, you have to write Satan's prince. And every time somebody calls on you, it's, it's hey, Satan's prince. And, and, and every time you speak your name, you're, you're saying this thing that, 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 that's just offensive to you and to your belief system. And it gives honor to this false God. And it's so offensive, but it didn't seem to phase Daniel. And the reason it didn't seem to phase Daniel is because he knew the second thing that we need to know about how to navigate Babylon. Daniel knew his real name. And that's the second thing we need to know. We need to know our real name. Know your real name. Daniel knew what his real name was. The name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. And so there was this sense of, listen, you can call me whatever you want to call me because I know that God and God alone is the one who is my judge. And everything Daniel did, he did in light of the fact that God was in control and God was the only one who could properly judge him. Folks, we need that same confidence. We need to know our real name. It doesn't matter what people say about us. We need to know what God says about us. Do you know that when you accepted Jesus, when you become part of his family, that God gave you a new name? Did you know that? Do you know what your new name is? Hey, let me tell you what Paul writes to us in Ephesians Chapter two, verse 10, he says this. He says that, for we are God's masterpiece. 
That's your new name. You're God's masterpiece. You are God's handiwork. You are a piece of art that God has handcrafted and hand-selected, and you were designed to do this. It goes on to say, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That's your new name. Your name is somebody who has been set apart by God to represent him well by doing good things, even in very difficult and very dark places. And it was that confidence that Daniel had in knowing his identity and knowing his real name that allowed him to navigate what would have been a very difficult season. Because Babylon didn't stop by just changing his name. They sent him to an entire re-education process. He had to sit through all of this training about the Babylonian language and about the Babylonian literature. That, that means that he would have read and learned about the history of Babylon. And this would have been a false history. It would have been the history of how the, the Babylonians were proud in saying that their God, Marduk, was greater than the God of Israel. And it would have been all of these stories about the, uh, the practices of Babylon. And he would have learned about things like astrology. And he would have learned about practices of the occult. I mean, Daniel was forced to learn all of this nonsense. And yet it never shook his faith in God. And the reason it didn't is because of the third thing that Daniel knew that we need to know in order for us to navigate Babylon. And that is we need to know what we believe. See, Daniel knew what he believed. He knew the truth of God's word and he lived by it. And we need to know the same in our Babylons. A couple of years ago, I was out for a bike ride with my son. And somehow in the context of our conversation, he started to tell me about a video that he had watched on his school-issued iPad during a free time in class. And when he was telling me about this video, I mean, I about fell off my bike. This was nothing that a third grader, which was his age at the time, should ever have been exposed to. And then he starts telling me about the history of basically what this ideology is all about. And, and folks, if you've been in a situation like that, maybe you have, you have kids or grandkids and, and they start telling you something that somebody told them and, and, and you're just caught off guard, I was flooded emotionally. I mean, I, I was frustrated, I was angry, I was upset, I, I, I felt like I needed to do something about it. And so in my mind, I, I'm no longer listening to my son talking to me anymore. I'm now composing mentally the email that I'm gonna send to whomever's in charge of these videos. And it was about that time that I felt like God impressed upon me a question. And the question was this, how long, Kyle? How long, Kyle, are you going to try to protect your son from hearing about all of these weird, crazy ideas that are out in society? And when, Kyle? And when are you going to commit to making sure that your kids know the truth? It's a good question for me. And it allowed me to realize that at times I focus on the wrong things. And I think there are a lot of Christians today who also are, are maybe focusing on the wrong things. They're, they're fighting the wrong battles. Now, now, don't mishear me. Their heart is in the right place. Folks, some of the ideas, some of the crazy ideas that are out in our culture today, they are wrong. They are sinful. And let's just be really straight about this. They are dangerous. But folks, they're out there. 
And here's the reality. They have been out there as long as Babylon has been around. Ever since the fall, these crazy, nonsense, harmful ideas are out there. And the reality is we're not ever going to have enough power or authority to be able to legislate or, or, or stop all of these crazy ideas from getting out there. But folks, that's not where we need to spend our energy and our focus. Our energy and our focus needs to be poured into knowing what we believe. So take all that passion, take all that zeal and commit yourself to knowing the truth and helping the next generation to know the truth as well. Here's another way to look at it. Some of you may know that I'm a scuba diver. It's one of my favorite hobbies. And often when I dive, I use what's called enriched air in my air tank. Now, here's kind of what happens. As a diver, you are in a high-pressure environment. Anytime you're under the surface of the water, you experience more pressure. That's why if you've ever dove down to the bottom of a swimming pool, your, your ears, you, you feel the pressure because you're, you're under the pressure of the water. And so at 99 feet under the surface of the water, you experience four times the pressure that we normally experience on the surface. And the reason that becomes relevant is at the surface, when, when you and I breathe the air that we breathe, about 21% of it is oxygen, and, and there's like 76, 78% that's nitrogen. And our bodies are accustomed to dealing with the nitrogen in our system, but when you're in a high-pressure environment, the body tissue that you have absorbs nitrogen at a much higher rate, faster than it can process. And that becomes a problem. It leads to something called decompression sickness. It can be very harmful to the body. It can even be fatal. And so what I choose to do when I dive is, is I have a blend of air that adds oxygen to the tank. And those oxygen molecules are, are increased. So I dive with like a 32% blend. And the more oxygen molecules that are in the tank means it displaces the nitrogen. So there's less nitrogen. So when I'm in that high pressure environment, I'm absorbing more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. See, that's the, the approach that we need to take in Babylon. Babylon, folks, it's a high-pressure environment. And so we need to make sure that we are absorbing the good stuff. What we need to be absorbing is, is we know what we believe, and, and, and we can do that by absorbing the gospel story. And we need to be intentional about trying to soak in as much of the gospel story as we possibly can to help us navigate through Babylon. So just some real practical ways that, that we can do this. One is just through our, our ongoing prayer life and, and daily devotions. And we read uh, throughout Daniel that he would pray and it was a custom for him to pray three different times throughout the day, morning, noon, and night. And that's a great rhythm for us to just say, we're gonna take periodic check-ins throughout the day to connect with God. And some other just real practical things that you can be doing for you and your family to help you know the gospel story and absorb it one of them is, is something called the Bible Project. It's just a wonderful website, some great YouTube videos that really help the story of the gospel come to life and, and invites you to, to understand your role in that gospel story. It's a great resource that I'd highly recommend. Another is a book that just came out. It's called Mama Bear Apologetics. And you don't need to be a mama to enjoy this. Actually, if you have kids or grandkids or even for yourself, it's a wonderful resource. It walks us through the first couple chapters of, of why we need to be uh, intentional about our belief system. And then the rest of the book deals with some specific kind of nonsense ideas that are out there in culture. And it helps us to, to process through what the truth is about those issues. 
And the third and the final resource that I'll just share with you is, is one of our global partners is, is holding a seminar in just a few days' time on uh, the 13th of July. And it's a seminar all about how we can bring hope in the midst of the global youth culture. In a sense, it's like, how can we be Jesus in this secular world? And through a seminar like that, you learn more about how the truth of the gospel can come into the Babylons of our world. You can sign up for that uh, seminar on our website. Just go to, to our website and, and right there you'll find the information to sign up for that great seminar. Folks, we have to be about absorbing the gospel story so we're equipped to navigate Babylon. Now the fourth and the final thing that we need to be able to do for us to be equipped and to navigate Babylon, we need to know our mission. Daniel knew his mission. And we need to know our mission. Because here's the thing, when we're in Babylon, there will come a point for all of us where we will have a crisis of faith. There'll be a moment where our worldview and what God has called us to do will come in direct conflict with the way of Babylon. It'll be like those rulers and authorities who ask us to do something that is a violation of scripture. What are we gonna do about it? What did Daniel do about it? Well, let's look at the rest of Daniel's story in Daniel chapter one. The situation and the conflict came when it dealt with what Daniel was required to eat. Before we get into the passage here, Daniel was a Jewish man and he would have followed a strict dietary guideline. Those dietary laws that Daniel followed uh, were God's way of letting him know that he was a select chosen person set apart from the rest of the world. And the, the things that he was not supposed to eat, those are the things that Nebuchadnezzar was serving on his menu. So what's Daniel gonna do about it? So let's pick up the story in Daniel chapter one, verse eight. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. I mean, right away, Daniel says, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna compromise. I'm not going to give in to sin. Listen, you wanna change my name? You want me to go through all this education process? That's fine, but I'm not going to violate scripture. And that's such an important point for us to know today that we must be determined that we are not gonna sin against God. But how Daniel went about this is fascinating to me. He didn't protest. He, he, didn't, he didn't put up a fight. Do you know what he did? Let's keep reading. He asked the chief of staff for permission. He asked for permission. He, he made a request. It says he asked for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to other use your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Okay, you talk about a bad boss. I mean, if he messes up with his job, he's going to lose his head. So why did Daniel ask for permission? Well, I'm convinced that because Daniel had gotten to know the Babylon culture. He, he had understood what was going on there and all the false teaching and the nonsense that was everywhere in that society. And he understood something about the chief of staff. They had a relationship. And what he understood is that the chief of staff was afraid. In fact, we heard that word from the chief of staff two times in that short passage. He was afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, he's afraid because this would have been a, a Babylonian pagan. This, this Babylonian pagan didn't have any sense of a God 
who's a God of justice. He didn't have any sense or any awareness of a God who's a God of love. He didn't have any hope or promise of, of a God that would be near him. He, he had nothing. He had no hope for the future. The only options that the chief of staff had were he could comply or he could die. And I want to suggest to you, the people that we engage and we encounter in our Babylons, they too are afraid because they too are faced with those same options. They're people who don't know hope. They don't have the hope of Jesus, which means they don't know what it's like to have a God who promises to be near them in hardship and suffering. They don't have a God who promises to give them a true sense of identity. They don't have a hope for the future or forgiveness or or examples to follow from scripture. All they have is two options, comply, or face social death by being canceled by culture. And folks, that fear is permeating our culture today. And I think Daniel understood that. And so it caused him to take a very wise tactic with the chief of staff because he understood that actually, even though he was the captive, he was the most free person in Babylon because he had a relationship with God. And it was actually his captors, those that held the keys to his chains, who were the ones that were being held captive. They were being held captive by the false way of thinking and the spiritual powers of that dark world that they were living in. That's what Paul tells us in Colossians 2, that this is what's going on in society. Paul writes this in Colossians 2.8. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. See, that's what was happening in Babylon. They were being held captive by these crazy ideas. And folks, that's what's happening in the Babylons of today. And it caused Daniel to view the people with whom he engaged, not as the enemy, but as the mission. So he realized that the chief of staff wasn't the one who was against him. It was the powers of Babylon that were against him. And we need to know the same thing when we're in Babylon. Folks, listen, that boss of yours that is so difficult and and is demeaning towards your faith, she is not the enemy. She's the mission. That university professor who makes fun of Christianity, he's not the enemy. He's the mission. That HR department that's imposing all these new things that you're required to sit through all this training about, they're not the enemy. They're the mission. Can you imagine what would happen if if you started to view them not as the enemy, not as the ones to be defeated, but the ones to be rescued? Not as the ones who are actually against God, but the ones that need to know the hope of God. Can you picture some of those people right now in your life? Imagine how your demeanor would change, how your attitude would change, how your conversations would change if you viewed them no longer as the enemy, but as the mission. You know what it might cause you to do? It may cause you to do what Daniel did. He proposed a test. That's how Daniel responded to this. Verse 12. But please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. It's brilliant. 
He offers up a test. Folks, we can do the same thing. In the Babylons of our day, when when your boss asks you to do something that you know to be unethical and would violate scripture, I mean, say no, but but propose a test. Say, how about I do it the way that's gonna be honoring to God and then compare my results to everybody else's results in, in a quarter's time. Or if your kids are on a youth sports team and, and there's a demand that they, they always are there on Sunday morning for practice and they can't ever be involved in church, propose a test. Propose a test that allows your family to go worship for one hour a week, the God who created all activity, and say, give us a month and then compare our kids' results to the rest of the team and, and see how they do. Now, is that risky? Oh yeah, that's risky. Is there a chance it may not go the way you think it's gonna go? There's a chance, of course. But here's the opportunity, folks. It allows us to show the world a better way to be human because God's ways are always superior to the ways of Babylon. And that, folks, that's the point. Give God room to work in Babylon by proposing a test. Here's how it worked out for Daniel. Skip to verse 15. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. And I love it. It's almost as if Daniel rolls into Babylon in his food truck and everybody else there in that society had been eating choice meats and all of this wine. And Daniel starts uh, handing out vegetables and water and it works. And it works not because of the diet or the food or the menu. It worked because Daniel had something that no one else in Babylon had. He had hope. He had hope in who God was and that God was with him in the midst of this. And the hope that Daniel had gave those people in Babylon a perspective that they had never experienced or seen before. You know how we know that? Because they valued Daniel and they valued his input. This guy served three different rulers in his time in Babylon. That's unheard of for somebody in his position. And we know that because of how Daniel 1 ends. Here's the final verse in Daniel chapter 1. It says that Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. (laughs) That is 66 years later because King Cyrus was part of the Medo-Persian empire that conquered Babylon. So do some math with me. If Daniel would have been 15 or so when he was carried off into Babylon and then he served 66 years of all these different royal kings, that would have put him well into his 80s when the Medes and the Persians took over. And do you know what happened when the Medes and the Persians took over to Daniel? That was when Daniel had his experience in that famous incident in the lion's den. Sometimes we have these cartoon images of Daniel being a ruddy 30-some-year-old in that lion's den. No, not at all. He was a man in his 80s when he had the courage to stand up and was placed in the lion's den. Folks, you know what that means for us? Come on, here's what it means. It doesn't matter if you are 8, if you are 18, or if you are 80. You have the opportunity in your Babylon 
to live uncompromised with the hope we have in God. And when we do, it allows us to be on mission. You know what makes a food truck so great? One of the things I just love about food trucks, and you know a food truck is good, when the people who are dishing out those, that food, when they're dishing it out, they know it tastes good because they've tasted it themselves. That was Daniel. Daniel knew that he could be a person of hope because he had tasted the hope that comes from the presence of God. Folks, we can hand out hope when we taste and experience and know the hope that comes from our relationship with Jesus. One of the ways we taste that hope, one of the ways we remind ourselves of the taste of hope is through communion. And that's an opportunity that we are going to experience together here in just a moment. Before we do so, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for placing us in environments that we would never choose. Lord, Daniel was carried against his will into Babylon. And Father, I have to imagine that every day he was there, he longed to be somewhere else. Father, that is so true for many of us. But Lord, in the midst of a place that we never would choose to be, Lord, you can do great things. And Father, I pray for all of us who experience Babylon, Lord, that we would be so confident in our hope in you that Lord, when we face the pressures in Babylon and we are squeezed, Father, that the hope we have in you is what would come out of us. And Lord, I pray that it would allow us to show hope and share hope to those in Babylon who are desperate for it. That's what you have called us to do. And Father, I pray that you would give us your strength to live for you in the Babylons we face. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. It is in communion where we are reminded about the hope that we have in Jesus. Because it's in communion that we are reminded that it was Jesus who in a sense came to a place of Babylon. He came into our world and he showed us what it meant to truly follow after God and to truly live an uncompromised faith in God. But more than just give us an example, Jesus also became a sacrifice for us. He, he took on the, the punishment for our sins and bored them so that, that we could not have to face those consequences, but that we would have a new life in him. And that's what communion reminds us of. In the cup that we celebrate, it reminds us of the blood that Christ shared and, and the bread is reminding us of the body that Christ gave for you and for me. And it's, and it's in this sacrifice that we find our hope because it's in this sacrifice that we have the opportunity for new life. And not just a fresh start, but a new start, a start where God's spirit actually comes and dwells within us. And so we carry hope in us. And that's what we're reminded about in communion. So if you have some elements nearby, I want to encourage you to have them in your hands. Let's, let's take them together wherever you are. And first, let's remind ourselves that here at Wooddale Church and, and through this uh, online version of communion, or if you're joining us from one of our venues, 
that communion is for anyone who is part of God's family. You don't need to be a member of any church to partake in communion, but you do need to be a member of God's family. And it's in communion that we remember what Christ has done for us. And so it was on the night that he was betrayed that Christ was having dinner with his followers. And he first took bread and he said, this is my body, which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it was after the supper that Christ turned his attention to the cup. And he said, this cup represents a new covenant. It's a new deal between you and God. And it's a covenant that was because of his blood. And God told us, or Jesus told us, that we should do this every time we drink of it in remembrance of him. And folks, as as you take this cup, remember the sacrifice that Christ gave for you so that we can have a new day start with God. And so God, we come before you and Lord, our hearts are glad. Father, we have hope in you. And Lord, I pray that Lord, this, this meal would remind us, Lord, just, just the taste in our mouth would, would give us the reminder about the hope that we have in you. And it's a hope that is beyond, uh, Father, that it's a hope beyond any circumstance or any situation that we may face. And Lord, I pray that that hope would sustain us in the Babylons we face today. May we live uncompromised for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.